Welcome to Prime Office interview series, insights from industry practitioners discussing their journey and their discoveries. I want to introduce Ben Arnold, founder and managing partner of Merakai Global Advisors. Merakai is a premier buy-side solution that provides global multi-asset trading, leverage management, and capital introduction services to sophisticated and diversified clients. With an independent and unconflicted approach, Merakai helps partners manage complex strategies and asset classes across the globe. Welcome, Ben. It's great to have you here. Thanks, man. I'm very excited to be here. This is such a unique situation. You have such an interesting product with a unique value proposition. So let's start and tell us about your career journey. My career journey was probably different than most. Out of school, I started my first job at UBS Private Wealth Management at the headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut, but quickly realized that private wealth management was not for me. And I was more in trading on an institutional level, which I kind of figured out in college at one point after taking a bunch of derivatives courses that were being taught at school. So after about six months, I was looking for roles at hedge funds, but my background at the time, it wasn't as easy to find. You know, Most of those folks at hedge funds or that were working at the investment banks had been in some of the summer analyst programs, and that's not a direction I had taken. So I found a company in London that was teaching high-level finance courses to investment banks employees. So I went to London and I volunteered as an intern to help out with the courses, like administrating them, not teaching them, but helping organize them. There's a few places we had to travel like Budapest for a couple of courses. And my way of being paid was my ability to sit in on these courses and learn higher level finance courses and information that was more tangible to actual job function. So I learned about at the time, this was probably 2007, six, seven, learned about repo swaps, interest rate derivatives, and various other things. And these investment banks would send their employees to these courses and they would pay thousands of dollars per employee. So that was kind of my next step to a higher level finance outside of wealth management to help me transition. From there, I had another number of roles at hedge funds, either as a trading desk assistant, and then ultimately a trader. I started at a Tiger Spinout, which was a US-focused tech media telecom fund in 2000. Seven And then in 2008, I moved to a fund called Asian Century Quest, which ended up being close to a $2 billion Asia-focused hedge fund where we predominantly only traded in Asian equities or ADRs, but I was on the night trading desk trading Asia from New York. The life of a night trader doesn't last super long. My boss, he did it for a number, I think almost five or seven years. I did two and then felt that I needed to be in Asia to really make this solidified. And at the time, there were a lot of funds interviewing and opening offices in Hong Kong for an outpost in Asia. So I guess who was at the time, Ziff Brothers, SAC, York, a bunch of other funds. I was interviewing, going back and forth a couple of times, still had my role, but ultimately it was difficult to do it remotely, trying to find that job I was finding. They were really just being on the ground was what they were saying was important. So my now wife, girlfriend at the time, we packed up all of our stuff, put it in storage in New Jersey. We were living in Manhattan. 
And she left her job. She was doing fashion PR in New York. And we went and stayed with friends in Hong Kong for a few months. Decided, you know what? While we're waiting for some interviews to come through, let's travel. So we went to Thailand and Cambodia for around two and a half months or so. I came back and forth a few times to do interviews in Hong Kong. But ultimately, what it led to was not what I had thought I would be was another hedge fund trading job. I got a lot of options when a friend said, why don't you look at the sell side? I said, oh, okay. Can you introduce me some people? Next thing I know, I'm taking a number of interviews with sell side firms and I've got four job offers. And I was like, okay, you know, I think this would be great for my career because I know the buy side aspect of the firm as a trader. I want to really know what happens to the sell side because everyone has their own premonitions about can't trust them, whatever it may be. So I remember I walked into our friend's apartment and I was like, look, this is great job offers right now. Like currently my wife was like, well, that's great. So where is it? Hong Kong or Singapore? And I was like, well, that's the thing is actually going to be neither. In the end, it worked out because if you went to Hong Kong or Singapore, it was already established. I would have been like the last man man or woman on the totem pole at like the fifth or sixth, eighth, 10th sales trader on the desk with trying to grind it out, finding clients. And I got two job offers in India, one in Korea and one in Japan. I let my wife decide, being that she's Korean-American, I knew that there was going to be some heavy opinions on whether it be if Korea or Japan was an option. And I hadn't realized at the time, I thought she would have chose Korea, but she said, you know, look, I haven't spoken Korean since I was about five years old, six years old, very well or very much. So it's kind of like being a second rate citizen in a country that you're not fluent in. So I was like, Oh, okay. I was like, that's fine. Cause like, she's like, what is the best job? Because she's like, I'm kind of agnostic now about where we go. Cause it's not Hong Kong or Singapore. I said, honestly, the best role is in India. And she said, well, you're going to starve to death because you don't like Indian food. <laughs> you know what? I think that we should go visit. So one of the firms flew us down. We went and visited checked it out. And we said, like, are you ready for an adventure? And she's like, if you think this is best for your career, let's do it. She's supported me ever since. She took a big risk on doing that. And we ended up living in India for the next four years. We were there for a year and a half with BNP Paribas doing equity and equity derivative sales trading. Then I moved over to Goldman. Fast forward four years later, I had a child in India. Things were changing. Four years was way longer than I thought and promised my wife. But it was the best and worst experiences of our life. I wouldn't change it for anything. And I was able to cover some of the largest institutions in the world, which being there afforded me that ability because there was not a plethora of folks that were willing to be there, I guess. So I moved to Hong Kong with Goldman and I continued doing equity equity sales trading, but I was doing Pan-Asia with a focus, a big focus on India. But I had a number of clients that I traded for other markets. And then I started focusing primarily on large block transactions for these funds, both hedge funds and large asset managers, sovereign wealth funds. A couple of years later, I had a great year. I felt that I, it was going to be a very hard, repeatable year. And things were starting to change in the sales trading business where I felt that the focus of the firms was not giving as much credit to sales trading or importance. And they were reducing the number of sales traders having to cover more clients with less resources. But I certainly wasn't going to go to do sales trading because you know I felt Goldman was the best place to be 
with some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And everyone's very fair, hardworking, and just it kind of forces you to want to be your best every day by just the people you are surrounded with, as opposed to different types of manager styles that they think that they can manage you in a certain way to try and get the best out of you. I think it was pretty organic. And there's new thing had popped up about outsource trading. And I thought that was interesting given that the reduction in sales traders and the needs of some of the clients I was covering that were on the smaller side, like $500 million hedge funds without traders that could have benefited from a trader. And that was the premise of what outsource trading was supposed to kind of be. Now I had two little kids and we moved back to the States and I joined this other firm to help build out their outsource trading business. And I stayed there a few years and outsource trading was morphing or at least I felt it should morph into something different and get back to the roots of what outsource trading really meant and defined, as opposed to the way it was being done in 2016, 17, or 17, 18. The parties that were performing outsource trading really looked no different than what I thought was basically introducing broker dealers. And that's been around forever. So I just felt like it was an additional fee describing something that really wasn't being done the way that I knew how to do trading as an internal trader at a hedge fund. And my clients at the time at this other firm that I brought in depended me to do it exactly that way. Perform as if you were and do the job the same as if you sat in our office, except for a few minor points. So I started the idea of like, why don't I just start this myself and almost three and a half years later from the time we started America Global. And here we are, we started with one client and three of us, and now we're closer to 20 clients and 12 people with offices in Park City and Hong Kong. It's one thing to come up with a great idea, finding a need, but it's another to actually say, you know what, I'm going to do this. So what was that moment for you? And I think tie in that opportunity set that you saw on the market for venturing out and kind of taking that risk to start something because you believe in it so much? I was never the type of person that always wanted to start a business or build a business and be their own boss. Like, I didn't want any of those things. I was happy building my own little business with inside a business and it's very comfortable. And I also, to be fair, am a big person and believer in group think. And knowing your shortcomings and your shortfalls and hiring people that are better and smarter than you. It's a very easy job to hire people smarter than you, but most people, for some reason, are afraid of doing it. I don't understand it. I'm also a big believer in how you're treated and your work environment. I didn't feel that I was in the best work environment for the way that makes me excel. And I also was doing business a particular way and only one way at a firm that was doing it in a few different ways. But I was pretty adamant about the way that I was doing it. And because that's the way my clients and I agreed for their purposes was the best way to do it. It wasn't an ideal time. I had moved to Park City. We opened the other firm's headquarters there. Just because some other people were already here. I had just had identical twins so I had four children, four years old and under, and it was not what was expected. And we also started building a house in Park City, and this is like 2017. And I was kind of just forced because of the direction in which I felt that the business would benefit. And my ideas were different than what the principles of the other firm 
wanted for their business, which totally respect. So I said, I believe in myself, my family supporting me and doing this, but I'm still young enough that if there's ever a time, this is about the right time to try it in a few more years, five years from then I'd be in my forties. And that's a little bit different of a pill to swallow. But I also recognized the various conversations I was having when I was trying to get other clients at the other firm of the perception and the intake about the way I felt and the way that I thought doing business and how we were doing it for our clients. I was confident enough that I would have a few clients follow me and in short term, which I probably overestimated, getting more clients quickly because they'd understand the idea. What I didn't understand or didn't realize was brand names a lot in our businesses, even if it doesn't align with the right interests of both parties. And because we were new when we launched, well, we don't know you and I won't be fired for using so-and-so because everyone's heard of them, which I think this is very prevalent in our business for some reason, but it's very much flawed in the thinking. Because you look at FTX, I won't be fired because everyone else did it. Didn't work out so well for that exact reason. I just think that people sometimes use that as an excuse as opposed to doing like the real homework and understanding the nuts and bolts of what is actually happening in the background. And from a buy side perspective, it's very hard to know and really grasp unless you really go through it from start to finish exactly what's happening on this side of the fence when you are outsourced trading, as we're going to use as the homogenous term for clients. I totally agree with you. It's so interesting because hearing your story and how you do things, you're kind of like me. We go in and we really want to understand from beginning A to Z and actually understand it. Here's all the great things about it. And here's all the issues and how we're going to make it And you have to experience it, like live it, learn it, breathe it to really find a true solution. So I would love to understand a little bit more about who are your clients and then how do you help those clients? When we have FINRA license, there's various rules and regulations that require you to be registered with FINRA. And a lot of it has to do with the overarching encompassing rule that is in our business as to what would define you as having to be a broker dealer. And then there's other business, there's various business lines once you've already stepped over that path is receiving transaction-based compensation. So if you're tying it to a transaction and you're being compensated, you need to get registered. That was clear. Then it gets a little muddy in terms of what exactly license or types of business are you doing? We managed to get one that hadn't been done yet. Just because we could have followed the path of everyone else and become the traditional outsourced trading firm, which is an introducing broker-dealer, which means their clients face the outsourced trading firm or broker-dealer. The broker-dealer then faces other broker-dealers. So they're a hub and a spoke. And that works for a lot of clients because if you're smaller, maybe you don't have the capacity or the resources to set up a bunch of brokerage accounts. So maybe you don't value the street resources. Maybe you don't need research reports or maybe you don't need an expensive prime brokerage 
Maybe you're just simple, like plain vanilla equity in the U.S. liquid securities. That makes sense. Or maybe you're very, very large and you pay a lot to the street and then you want to do it other times through this and utilize the capacity and relationships that the outsource broke trading firm slash introducing broker firm has with the other broker dealers. We only wanted to do it one way because we identified that our offering was a premium, bespoke, more sophisticated type of relationship and need by clients similar to what they would need from three highly specialized internal traders. We only do business one way, and that is as our client with their counterparties. We do not have counterparties of our own. So we do not face Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. The client still does it. So because of that, we don't require any of our clients' workflow to fit any one particular way, which is basically fit in our box, which is kind of the way I was seeing it done elsewhere. We're saying every fund is unique. Everyone does things differently. We will fit into what bespoke workflow works best for you. We can help you if you're not sure. We can find ways to improve that. But given you are $500 million, $1 billion hedge fund, you're obviously doing something right. We don't want to change that. And we want to do what we do best. We want to be your internal trader, but we just won't sit in your office. So that if you choose, some of the costs can now be fund exposed to management fees. And that's their choice. And then also, we are not restricted in the asset classes or regions or countries we can trade. If X client can trade that interest rate derivative, but Y can't, then we're only trading it for X. And if X only trades with Goldman and Y trades with Morgan, we're only trading with Goldman for X. And if they can trade in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, great. If they can't, then we can't trade there for them. And that's how we view it. And every client is silent to what is pertinent to them, how they work, as well as all the way down to resources. So if a client is PB'd and pays Morgan Stanley, but another client doesn't, we're not going to get resources from Morgan Stanley under false pretenses for that first client to give to a second client that doesn't pay Morgan Stanley. We feel that that is not right, nor is it what Morgan Stanley wants. So that's why we're pretty good partners with the street because we're not interfering or cannibalizing any of their business. We're just replacing a role that was traditionally internal and doing everything the exact same. So we're not changing even the way Morgan Stanley has to do business to suit that client. Tell us a little bit more about the type of clients you serve. It has tended to be hedge funds for us, but there's no reason. Well, actually, we do have a long only. It could be traditional asset manager, PE or VC firm or family office. What we do is 90% of our clients depend on us to do 100% of their trading. Like They don't have any traders at all. Or we do one region. They have a US trader, we'll do Asia or a product. They do equities, we'll do derivatives or fixed income. The reason that we do it that way is because we're so ingrained in the firm. I don't believe our traders can do a really good job without being constantly in the flow and understanding what the CIO and PM's needs and the firm's needs and their processes and knowing their positions and all these things that if you want to be a pure executioner and just execute orders, 
in liquid things, you can just create a computer program to do it. I don't really see why you would pay someone to do that or just give it directly, have the smart order router, just route it directly to your counterparties. We trade a lot more difficult to trade things that requires a human interaction and thinking, and that's our way of providing alpha. But we don't do backup. If you think about it, we launched really not that long before COVID. And I noticed everyone that was doing a backup service, they were given backup requirements from everyone because everyone needs a backup at the exact same time. So then you're disservicing the clients that really depend on you. So we want to be a lot to our clients. We don't want to just be an overflow. That's what your brokers are for, right? Depend on them. And run a fund with one trader. It's not responsible because that person can get sick or that person can get injured or that person needs a holiday and sleep. And then there's errors and other things that can occur. So if you think about it, if you're a multi-asset or even a global firm that trades US, Europe, and Asia, you can't even do that with two traders. It's not possible. You have no backup situation and capability internally. And you probably don't have experts in those regions. Whereas what we do is every trader is for a specific purpose and fits a specific need of certain clients. And we keep a three to one client to trader ratio. I think our competitors are more like 10 or 20, more like 20 to one, 30 to one. And our median fund size is now a billion and a half. At a billion and a half, there's a lot of different needs than at 100 million. And that's kind of the niche and the sweet spot that we fit into. We do everything. You know, we build custom reports, we build custom baskets, we help with hedging structures, we help them think about using different products like interest rate derivatives or so for swap curves or very other exotic FX option structures to hedge different factors or considerations that they're thinking about. So I think because of the level of some of that sophistication, it tends to gravitate towards funds that need that. And most funds that think about those types of things tend to be hedge funds. To be truly bespoke, you have to be able to be nimble for your clients and thinking ahead, which leads me to my next question. You have expanded your business offices globally. What's on the next radar for Merikai? We have been investing internally, hiring more people, different backgrounds, different regions. Next is we're in the process of working on our FCA license and London office. We got our Hong Kong license this summer. Again, every time we get a license, it tends to be in a different type of category than traditional. We also did similar in Canada. So London would be next if I think about region. And then also, given the products and our capabilities of what we trade, we are also getting a lot more inquiries from macro funds. Macro funds that need help in off hours or various execution, a lot of times the PM is executing themselves, but a lot of times they'd rather not, and they can spend time doing strategy or other things. So that's an area we're looking at, and also fixed income. There's only a couple of us that do fixed income. Currently, we are different in the sense that we are not, again, an introducing broker-dealer. So we don't face a lot of the other counterparties. And sometimes people view that as maybe we are not in the flow as much. But at the end of the day, the more you pay the street as a fund, the more resources you receive. I do think it's a big business and a good opportunity 
I just think the timing of when we started around a year and a half or two years ago, we put some resources to it, but it seemed a bit a little bit early for some. The credit markets are still a little bit behind in terms of how they think about outsourcing various functions. I don't think it's for everyone. Just like outsource trading is not for everyone. It fits certain needs. And I think that there's a certain needs of credit funds that it would be particularly useful for, especially like some of our clients that maybe at any point in time, 30% of their portfolio is in credit. And we also then do that execution. That's probably the next one. We were focusing a little bit on crypto for, we had a number of crypto hedge funds that wanted help, but we've also kind of paused that for a bit. So that may be a direction we look down the line. And we might throw some more recess towards cap intro. Now, in the traditional sense, we don't do cap intro in the traditional sense. We do anything we can to help our clients be bigger and better. If they want help raising capital, they can use anyone they want. If they're a client of ours, we'll also try and help them through some of our network that's differentiated. So we will make introductions to other firms that we know are allocating and they know we're not like blasting this stuff out. They know we know exactly what they're looking to invest in. So they pick up our emails. Compensated is very different. We look at ourselves of how we align ourselves with all parties and we've come up with a structure that helps that. And it's just an additional tool, a different arrow in our quiver to help our clients. And that's what we constantly look at. I think it's been tough to raise capital for folks, but I believe we just got one of our clients a $50 million ticket for their launch. So the biggest part of my job now is hiring the right people for these functions. And this is so fantastic. Thank you for giving us your time today and sharing your background and everything that you're doing in Marikai. Thank you. We hope that was helpful for someone out there. And thank you for the prodding questions to get me talking about this. Thank you for listening to Prime Alpha's Visionaries and Innovators podcasts. As always, you can head over to primealpha.com to sign up to our email list, as well as check out our other podcasts. See you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any investment or any securities. Listeners should make their own investigations and evaluations of the information contained herein. Certain information contained in this podcast constitutes forward-looking statements. Listeners should not rely on these forward-looking statements. Listeners should bear in mind past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. Mm -hmm.